This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network. This is Opinionated, a roundtable debate that fascinates with each new thought-provoking guest, the place to convey strong ideas and at times the casual controversy. Join features editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson as they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everybody. I'm Ben Schiller, and this is the Opinionated Podcast with Anna Bedakova and Danny Nelson. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. So we're going to be talking about Africa today and uh, the role of Bitcoin. We have a very special guest, uh, Austria-based Bitcoin advocate, Anita Bosch. Anna's going to be leading the discussion, so uh, let me hand it over to her. Anna? Thanks, Ben, and welcome, everybody. So the, the idea of this podcast actually have been to talk about crypto in Africa. There's been quite a lot of hype about crypto in Africa recently, uh, especially about Nigeria, I guess. And it looks the region is indeed actively getting on the crypto train. Local Bitcoin says that Africa delivers 12% of their global volumes now, which is some um, $600 million, and the demand is growing. So there are some well-known cases of human rights activists using Bitcoin for fundraising, and uh, there is a lot to unpack here. And we have a guest that is very well qualified to do that for us today. So Anita Posh actually just had her book uh, out in July, right, Anita? It's called Learn Bitcoin, Ellen parenthesis, uh, so you can read it, learn or earn. Bitcoin. So congratulations with that. Yeah, thank you very much, Anna. And thank you for having me on the show today. Yes, I just released it. And the emphasis is also on earning Bitcoin, because I think it's especially important uh, to be able to earn Bitcoin for people in, in areas like Africa, where they don't have much money. So most of them aren't even able to like exchange their local currency or US dollars to Bitcoin because the transaction fees are relatively high for them. So that's why I think that earning Bitcoin is a very important factor in uh, the adoption of Bitcoin globally. So it looks that you focused quite a, quite a few on Africa. I went to your podcast page and there are episodes about Bitcoin in Ghana, Bitcoin in Zimbabwe, in Senegal, in South Africa. You have an episode about Eritrea. You dug really deep into what's going on on that continent. So looking at what's going on, talking to people, what do you think? Where is Africa currently on the global Bitcoin map? Is it like really a hotbed for the new phase of explosive growth for crypto? Is it just, uh, you know, the same story that what's happening in any other place on the earth? What's your impression? What's going on in crypto in Africa right now? So in general, I think it's very, very different than uh, in the developed parts of the world, like in Europe and in the US. Uh, people here are mainly holding it as an investment, as, as a tool for speculation very often. So we have a quite good working banking system. So most of the people here think uh, even that Bitcoin uh, is not necessary and because of the high electricity that it uses, uh, it should even be banned which is very ego and Eurocentric or Western-centric because uh, people in developing countries like in Africa 
really need Bitcoin. They are the ones who need it much more than we do. What I see is that next to Latin America and South America, countries where internet adoption is partly higher than in African countries, they are the next ones where the adoption will increase. And especially like countries like Nigeria, where uh, people are highly educated and you know, the average age of Africans is 20 years. So they are very, very young. The new generation, they all want to work with digital technology over the internet, being developing apps or just like also trade a lot. So trading is one of the use cases that many people do it. Nigeria and all those countries have very high, high rates of inflation. Like in Nigeria, I think the inflation per year is 30%. In Zimbabwe, I mean, where I uh, have been last year, it's about 300% or something. So these are the use cases why people need it, because they are losing so much value in their local currencies, and they also need to earn money. And Bitcoin seems to be a great way to earn money online. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. We're seeing a big push in the West and governments in the West to regulate cryptocurrencies more, especially through extra layers of KYC. And I know that that might pose a problem in Africa because not everyone in Africa is going to have the types of identification from the governments that they do uh, in the West. Do you think that the push to more heavily regulate crypto might actually come at the expense of Africa and for people who are really looking to the cryptocurrency as an alternative to their you know, financial systems, not just as a means of trading like we might see in the West? Exactly. I mean, that's a huge danger. And that's why I'm so for uh, like regulation, but minimum regulation, you know, because that's exactly the reason why we have so many billions of unbanked people, because they don't have access either to a bank or the bank says, you don't own enough money. So we are not interested in you as a client because the regulation that we need to do, the bureaucracy, is much more than you would like bring us profit. And so that's the reason why so many people are unbanked. And we, we should not allow financial regulators exclude all those people again. Many people, like women, for instance, in Africa, they don't even have an ID. Also men, of course. And like in Zimbabwe, for instance, with EcoCash, there was this possibility last year that you can have an EcoCash you can use the mobile money on your phone without the need for a plan for the phone. So you didn't need to pay for the subscription for the phone. You could use EcoCash and you needed an ID, but you could use an ID of a friend or somebody else. So that was like in the gray space and you didn't need a bank account. But now they changed regulations and said to EcoCash, no, people are not allowed to have multiple wallets anymore. And they are also not allowed to spend more than 40 US dollars per day. So as soon as you have centralized actors like exchanges or 
uh, Ecocash as a mobile money provider, the government can step in with regulations you, I mean, with different reasons, you know, it's always these money laundering and terrorism financing. Well, in the end, I say that's not the case. It's government extorting basically their population. And in many countries, this is happening that are authoritarian and dictatorships. They basically live from extracting value from the people. And I think these financial regulations that roll out basically from the U.S., in the global space, because every country is adopting these then, that's really to the disadvantage of billions of people. And um, we really need to take care that inside the, the Bitcoin economy, so from the moment on when you're in the Bitcoin space, like from local currency through exchanges, maybe into the Bitcoin space, that then we don't have any regulations. It would be not Bitcoin anymore if you can't uh, exchange value over the internet globally in a free and uncensored uh, manner. And so I think we need to stay vigilant. Maybe it's even good to be excluded from this system that is becoming so overregulated. We know the stories of people who can't get on an exchange they would just trade peer-to-peer. -peer. As some people that you talk to on your podcast, they would just go to the WhatsApp groups, Telegram groups, Facebook groups. They would just text each other and buy, sell Bitcoin, just peer-to-peer -peer and not even go to these centralized entities that uh, require their documents that store their data. Then they can lose that data or somebody can steal it from them. Maybe that's just another path for countries like those in Africa, maybe it's good for them. Maybe they will end up ahead of us in, in the end as a result of that. Yeah, that's funny that you say that. So I also think that actually that's a good thing. I mean, in Zimbabwe, why are they doing this? They meet up in WhatsApp group, in Telegram groups. You find a trusted peer that is then exchanging your Bitcoin to US dollars or the other way around. Uh, but they are doing it because they are oppressed. It's not because uh, they say, I want to be self-sovereign. Um, nobody is like having that in their minds like we have as Bitcoiners, you know. Of course, the optimum is that everybody holds his or her own keys and is independent from exchanges that can shut down or anything else. On your podcast, you've spoken with a lot of people that have really harrowing stories out of Africa. I'm wondering, how do you manage to like, find these people that have these personal narratives to tell? And also, you know, how do you as the interviewer compose yourself during what's quite honestly sometimes really difficult to hear content? The first thing, I'm scouting interview partners all the time. And so since my focus is on human rights and societal change and on countries like in Africa or in South America, I'm watching Twitter. I see people talk. I like Maron Estefanos from Eritrea, for instance. I found her on Twitter and just contacted her. Then uh, with all the Zimbabwean contacts, I, was, I visited the country and a friend of mine who's living there, she made up some contacts and people for me that I could interview. And from then on, you know, it's like everybody knows somebody. So you go to your trusted uh, sources or your trusted interview partners and ask them, hey, do you know somebody from Ghana? Do you know someone from Kenya? And then I can like hop uh, from person to person. The story from Maron Estefanos was really shocking to me, what she was uh, telling about the situation of Eritrean refugees 
who get kidnapped and tortured and raped and held for ransom. It's uh, incredible what she's doing. And I, I had the same thoughts uh, like on how does she cope with it, as you just uh, asked me. I'm just an interviewer and a podcaster, you know. My intention is to bring all those cases to the public so that more people know about it and that more people can also support initiatives like the one of Meron or, or others. Like I did a donation for a school in Zimbabwe, for instance. I initiated a campaign and the Bitcoin space is very helpful here. They then want to support people in these countries. And so, you know, for every bad story, in a way, I have another good experience where I have feeling I could uh, help someone. And that's great, too. I just want to say that that episode on Meron Estefanas was absolutely blood chilling. When I was listening, how she used to be talking to those hostages and like listening to how people have been tortured and stuff and, and how her own cousin was kidnapped and she had to know how she was tortured before she paid ransom. This is some kind of superhuman for me, just to, for people who didn't hear that amazing podcast episode, and I encourage everyone to listen to the Anita Post show. That episode is about Maren Estefanos and the Eritreans that were kidnapped. So she is now, uh, has a network of people who are helping her, right? To, to get those kidnapped Eritreans out of the, of the desert. And, and she is paying them in Bitcoin, right? That's the TLDR. Can you tell just a little more details of that story? Okay. Yeah. So Maron Stephanos is an Eritrean who fled the country, I think, 20 years ago when she was a child with her parents because Eritrea is a dictatorship since 30 years. In this dictatorship, Eritreans have a very high rate of people who flee the country because of the horrible living situation and the oppressive situation. And Maron was contacted one day, she's a journalist, and she received a telephone call where somebody started to say, help us, please. We are refugees. We have been kidnapped. We are held for ransom. Help us, please. And it's a very moving story. And there's also another podcast interview with her where she tells all of that. She then started to help those people by just listening to them. That was the first thing that she could do. Yeah, as you said, uh, it has grown now. She now has a network of researchers. She's now uh, trying to bring down the whole network of kidnappers, basically. And she's paying her researchers in Ethiopia, which is a neighbor country to Eritrea. She's paying them in Bitcoin. So Baron lives in Sweden and sends money through Bitcoin. And she said to me, the alternative that people have to say remittance, send remittances and money to Eritrea, because also 34% of the money that's in Eritrea has been sent to Eritrea. So the rate of remittances is very, very high. There are two ba basically traditional ways. The one is the traditional banking system like Western Union and all those banks or the Havala system. And the Havala system is a traditional system which is also peer-to-peer, -peer, but really person-to-person. -person. So she can pay a Havala agent uh, in Sweden, and through the network of business people, this money is sent to Eritrea or to Ethiopia, and people can receive it. And the other way with the tra traditional banking system, we know how that works. Transaction costs can be very, very high. Uh, people are in danger when they go to the banking sites and fetch their money. She said... Basically, we as the people can topple dictators 
Like if everybody in Eritrea would start to use Bitcoin as a form of payment and money, then they would dry out the dictators because traditional banking system and the Havala system is controlled by the government. That's what she said. And therefore, if we don't use it anymore, uh, they don't get money anymore to sustain their uh, dictatorship. I just wanted to put kind of a counterpoint here because uh, nobody could disagree with the harrowing nature of those use cases that you identify on the podcast, including that Eritrea episode. But I do feel that sometimes the kind of case for Bitcoin as a tool for human rights is somehow enlarged into a bigger argument about uh, Bitcoin being a viable currency uh, in in regions of Africa or or other places where they have underdeveloped uh, financial systems. Do you not think that uh, some of the cases that you identify, while being incredibly worthy and important, relatively edge cases compared to the larger problem of financial infrastructure in these developing countries? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, of course, these are examples. I think there are so many more examples and use cases that we will never hear of. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I mean, as an example, the headmistress of the school in Zimbabwe She also started to use Bitcoin to send money to uh, people she's working together with in Kenya because uh, she says it's not possible to send money from Zimbabwe to Kenya in an easy, cheap and fast way. It's also not possible to get US dollars, for instance, in Zimbabwe. You can't even get the local currency banknotes. That's the reason why so many people use mobile money. Uh, I think 90% of all transactions in Zimbabwe are digital and 99% of those are done with mobile money because they don't have an alternative. So it's basically also a use case for the general public, not only in these edge cases. It's a use case to be able to use money that cannot be inflated and where you can have some savings the first time with a technology that as soon as internet is available, is very easy to use. It's like sending an email and people know how to do that too. And they will also know how to use Bitcoin in that environment. Fair enough. But uh, I think I need to point out to you that uh, Bitcoin has depreciated uh, almost 50% since it's high in March or April. So how do you deal with that kind of volatility risk with this asset? I mean, why not use a stable coin, for instance, rather than Bitcoin that is so uh, fluctuating in price? Yeah, you're right. I mean, but on the other side, it has increased 10 times from the year before. So we we lost 50%, but it has uh, in general increased 10 times from uh, a year before. But if I'm sending uh, remittances from from the United States to Eritrea, and uh, one moment the thing's worth $65,000 and the next moment it's worth $35,000, I mean, how can I... uh, be sure yeah. that I'm really sending what I'm sending. Most of the times people then exchange this money immediately to US dollars because they need it to buy stuff. The risk is relatively low, I think, because if you have it in half a day and you can exchange it in half this day, then the volatility is very low. And they are used to that. I mean, the inflation in Zimbabwe is 300%. What do you want? I mean, that money loses more value than Bitcoin does. And I always say to people, exchange it, use it for your daily needs because people can't save very often. But if you're able to save a little bit, then do it in Bitcoin. I mean, yes, you're right. You can also use a stable coin for transacting. To say something is less volatile than something that is extremely volatile is not really a solution, is it? 
Yeah, but the solution will be that in uh, some years, the volatility of Bitcoin will be reduced more and more as it Why? did in the last years. We don't know, Why? Because, actually. <laughs> because may, no, because more people are using it. The more people using Bitcoin and putting their money in the system, the more stable it will be because if you have big changes, then if somebody like Elon Musk is saying, oh, I don't like Bitcoin today, tomorrow I will like it again, and people sell off everything because they think he knows everything, uh, then today this is possible. But as soon as there's more money in the system, one person with uh, like a billionaire cannot move this ship anymore. It's like a a small boat on the open sea where you have a wave and it will throw it. But if you have a tanker who's on the sea, the same wave doesn't do anything to the tanker. And that's what's going to happen uh, with Bitcoin. Well, I'm sure Africans will appreciate your analogy, but uh, it doesn't change the fact that this asset has been extremely volatile over the time. We now have hundreds of millions of users of Bitcoin and it hasn't become any more stable. So the, the idea that Bitcoin and only Bitcoin is the savior of Africa, it seems a bit sort of credulous and a bit uh, sort of Pandlossian, really. I don't say that. I'm an advocate for Bitcoin. That's why I'm talking about Bitcoin all the time, because I want to educate people. And uh, you know that the volatility in Bitcoin has been reduced in the last 10 years. It was much more in the first years, and it's uh, becoming less and less. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's free to use everything. That's the good thing. Uh, Bitcoin is, is an alternative. You don't have to use it. So, yeah. Well, I think the Bitcoin volatility is actually, you know, an open discussion if, if it's going to reduce with time or not. And people using it just should understand that they should just know they're taking that risk and if they do it. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm saying to people, this is a high risky investment or money that you use. You should know that. So there's no doubt about it. Do you think that uh, governments in Africa are seeing Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a threat to them? I'm thinking right now, most specifically about a rather funny little moment in February when a senator in Nigeria actually said that Bitcoin was making Nigeria's uh, fiat currency, I think the quote was useless, which was really a quite striking comment to come from a government official, but that's just one person. Is this something that governments there are thinking about on a broader scale, or is it more just a, a, a niche case? I think that's a niche case. I, I'm not sure. There are many, many countries in Africa. I can't speak for, for everything in general, of course. But like in Zimbabwe, for instance, I'm not sure if they have grasped the concept really, because they always say Bitcoin, no, cryptocurrencies, we don't want them, but the blockchain is good. So they definitely say they want to support blockchain projects like apps for, I don't know, insurances and something like that and build their own cryptocurrencies. Of course, I think they are intelligent people too, and they realize that if people start using a money that they can't control, that they will lose some kind of their control. I'm a little bit pessimistic. It always seemed to me like such a weird trick from the part of the government to say, look, these cryptocurrencies are so volatile, but we can actually you know, issue one good cryptocurrency, uh, a CBDC, a central bank-backed currency, it's going to be back, you know, it's going to be guaranteed by the central bank, it's going to be backed by a national currency, and that will just uh, divert people's attention from Bitcoin and other stuff that we don't like. It's so obvious that people are going into Bitcoin because they, they're going out of the existing system, and nothing that the existing system can offer, you know, can really replace that. 
Yeah, I think the same about that. Like you, um, they're doing these CBDCs, which in general are nothing else than the same digital money they already have. So it's just another system that's trying to, to be done directly from the central banks, excluding, funnily enough, the traditional banking system. But the, the problem with the CBDCs is that the control of the government will increase through that because they then can say from one day to the other, so now we are doing negative interest rates or now we are deducting your taxes automatically from your CBDC account. Or, I mean, even worse, as it's happening in China with the social credit system that is connected to the new uh, CBDC money, where if you don't behave like the government wants you to, then you are not allowed, you're not able through uh, the CBDC to buy a ticket for a train or something else. And I'm actually very, not scared, scared is the wrong word, but pessimistic because China is very deep into uh, Africa in economical terms. And I could imagine that China is helping like African nations uh, to use their CBDC. And that's a way for China to gain more power in the global uh, game of currency wars, you know. This is actually an excellent point. If you imagine a future system of the digital yuan that we know is well underway, that is integrated and connected with system of African CBDCs, and it's all interconnected and very well might be controlled by China, all kinds of formidable images of future come to mind. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the point. I don't even know if they will roll out their own CBDCs or if China will come as, you know, the big helper. We help you here uh, to grow economically. Just use our system. I think that's very plausible. This will be interesting then how the U.S. is reacting and how Russia will react, for instance. And the interesting point then also is, okay, but then we have a neutral global financial system called Bitcoin that nobody owns. Maybe this is the neutral currency that we can basically agree upon. Like on the one hand, we have our currency wars, but on the other side, we have a neutral possibility to send money too. So we will see how this plays out, but I'm sure that uh, these attacks on each other in an economical way will grow in the future. Yeah, and I can imagine that with the Belt and Road Initiative in China, that really could be a mechanism for the digital yuan to spread that the, the central bank in China, I think, just recently said that the digital yuan would be able to be used cross-border, which was a pretty big statement by them. And also, it probably is a hint that they definitely want to spread uh, this digital programmable currency around the world. And like you were saying earlier, that could uh, really increase concerns about the financial freedom that people have if you've got a government that might be able to more closely control not only you know, the issuance of money, but how that money is moving. Definitely. And, and China really sets out to control the world. I saw some uh, documentary on that recently. But luckily, we have Bitcoin that is not co-opted yet by any state uh, and can't be banned, as we hope globally. You know, it's, it's good that people like you keep educating other people on how to use it and how to join the network. So I think it's just a perfect point to wrap up on. So I need to thank you so much for joining us. We'll give the links to your podcast and to your book in the show notes to this episode. 
maybe some last uh, thoughts or observations you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, one observation I had recently about Bitcoin in Zimbabwe is that there's growth in using it because local Bitcoins, which is available there, and I think also Paxful is available, but they, the first time, uh, it's the first time that they published some trading numbers from Zimbabwe. And in the first quarter of this year, Bitcoin worth 850,000 US dollars have been traded officially on local Bitcoins. And I think it's interesting because it was the first time that they were reporting numbers on that. And so for me, it shows that the usage of Bitcoin is definitely rising in these areas. Yes, okay, there is volatility in Bitcoin, of course, but I think there are a lot of arguments that we have spoke about in the last uh, conversation that show how Bitcoin can help a big part of the global population. Oh, that's great. So thank you, Anita. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, that, so that was really good, wasn't it? I enjoyed speaking with her, but I have to say I'm a little bit unconvinced by some of the things she says. And I think there are a lot of these kind of Bitcoin advocates out there that just want Bitcoin to be everything to everybody. And it's kind of this golden solution to all the world's problems. And I appreciate a lot of the things that she said, absolutely, particularly about human rights. But Bitcoin is the kind of global savior of everything. It's a bit much, don't you think? I think that Anita is kind of old school Bitcoiner, very uh, respected in the field. She voices this opinion that I think many people in the industry share that Bitcoin really solves some of the global problems, that the volatility will go down when we go into the hyper-Bitcoinization, you know, and, and you might disagree with that. I think that you're onto something, but, but I don't think that it's like a yes or no situation. I do think that there really are situations in Africa where the governments in particular are taking note of Bitcoin and the fact that they're thinking, wow, this thing of this digital internet money that we've got here is doing the work that our fiat was trying to do and doing it better. I think that is a sign that we do have to uh, take these claims seriously, even if we got to stay careful not to overstate the extent to which crypto is becoming, you know, a thing in Africa. You mean to take seriously the statements by, by the government or by the Bitcoiners? Well, I mean, if the government's saying, look, Bitcoin is making our currency useless. Well, <laughs> did they not ever saying, say this, by the way? Yes, they did. It, in Nigeria, I was speaking about earlier in, in Nigeria, uh, a senator said uh, that the regulators really should take a look at cryptocurrency because it's, quote, made our currency almost valueless or useless. Oh, so, right, right. so right there is, you know, the, one of the individuals with a stake in the status quo saying this thing is, is looking to disrupt it. So I don't think that we're anywhere close to a point where there's going to be a Bitcoinization of economies. That's so far off. And I don't think we'll really ever get there for the volatility reasons. But I do think we have to keep tabs on this. Well, I think one confusion that people might suffer from is, you know, Bitcoin might be a solution for a problem of, a, you know, of, of this particular person that chose to opt out of, of the system they're currently in. But I really doubt that it can be a solution to systemic problems, especially the ones that we have in Africa. One reason for that, we, we discussed with Anita that, you know, the internet connection is not like not everywhere available in Africa. And when you don't have internet, how you can use Bitcoin? I mean, there are some technical experimental ways to do that. But, you know, still. 
I think the, the issue of internet access, I think that's a bit of a red herring. I think, you know, the history of the internet suggests that uh, everyone in the world will eventually have pretty good access to this stuff. And uh, she mentioned Starlink, which is a SpaceX satellite kind of initiative. And I, I can see a world in, in 10 years time where everybody has e easy access to the internet, probably before they have uh, access to water and, and, and electricity, maybe. Well, when uh, you are as optimistic about internet as Anita is optimistic about Bitcoin volatility, I well, would say. Uh, I mean, I, but I think that the, the internet protocol is frankly a bit more stable than some aspects of, of Bitcoin, you know, so I, I could see it being more uh, easily kind of taken up. But the idea that there should be one version of crypto that kind of supersedes all other versions of crypto and that the government should have no role in the provision of money in the future is frankly just ridiculous to me. I, I don't know. The one coin to rule them all. <laughs> exactly. well, well, but but I do think that of course different projects should exist and people just should have free choice. Another thing is that you know will the government let the people have a free choice? You know to opt out of the system that they exist in or not? This is the question. And and by the way, talking about Starlink, Ben, uh, I once talked to a tech uh, expert on the internet, and they said. Uh, you know, the laws are such that if, like, imagine Russia bans satellite internet or like Starlink in particular on its territory, Starlink will have to switch off when it flies above Russia. So, you know, the, there are all kinds of caveats on this technological development. But I, I just hope that, you know, smart people who know technology will always outsmart those people who want to ban everything. And probably that's our main hope for the future. Definitely. I guess I'm never really sure when people like Anita Posh talk about Bitcoin, whether she's literally meaning Bitcoin, the network and the, the singular product, or whether she means it a bit more sort of metaphorically, Bitcoin being this kind of new world of kind of internet native currency. Because I suspect that actually it's, it's more the second meaning that she means, actually. It's not like that everything's really going to be based upon the Bitcoin network. So you mean the really idea? Means that it has instead of the, the actual implementation. Yeah, the, 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 the idea of a kind of a private money outside of government control is much more feasible to me anyway than uh, Bitcoin itself being the solution to everything. I mean, I have a similar feeling, yeah, that it's not about just Bitcoin maximalism and hail Bitcoin and everything else be damned. It's about this uh, opportunity to use something, something else, you know, the something that doesn't depend on the whims of your national economy, on the whims of your national government, or whatever else centralized power can impose on you. Exactly. I think that the remittances thing that she talked a lot about is very intriguing because these countries are very dependent upon inflows of capital from workers overseas. And, and everyone wants to beat up on Western Union and MoneyGram because they're frankly disgusting you know, <laughs> companies. But uh, the, the idea that there's a natural kind of evolution away from those companies to these new forms of technology, again, is a, is a bit sort of fanciful. And I was thinking about Nigeria in this case, because a few years ago when I was writing my sort of pieces about Bitcoin replacing remittances, there was a case in, in Nigeria where the central bank put out this notice suddenly one day out of the blue to say that you could only be a money transmitter in, in that country if you had a certain amount of assets and you were a company of a certain size. And that immediately nullified prospects of all these startups that wanted to come in and base transfers on, on Bitcoin or, or similar protocols. So what, what, the point I'm trying to make is that we might think the technology 
supersedes uh, government can control. But in that case, uh, it was a simple you know, declaration from the central bank that managed to kind of kill any idea of Bitcoin or similar technologies uh, playing a part in that remittances uh, process. Basically, because of corruption, they just wanted to maintain the power of these uh, existing uh, incumbent, disgusting companies. Disgusting companies. Wow. So, I mean, uh, do you think that we're going to be heading towards a future like, all right, so it sounds like you believe that there's a cryptocurrency out there that might actually achieve what the Bitcoin maxi types say Bitcoin will. And maybe because it it does the things Bitcoin purports to do better. Is that uh, how you feel about it? I I feel that we're going to find some version of Bitcoin, but it may not be Bitcoin. And that's what's going to take over. And I I think government will still have a role in uh, in the provision of money. Well, talking about remittances, the good thing about crypto is you don't need any companies or startups or whatever to help you send crypto across the border to whoever you want. Hopefully, nobody can stop that. But when people say that, you know, remittances are expensive and uh, Bitcoin transactions are so much better, I'm like, what about transaction fees? Transaction fees on Bitcoin are not that like super small. And even if they are now, we don't know if they don't go up in the future because, you know, the Bitcoin economy is changing. At some point, there will be no need to be no coins issued, no new coins issued and the miners will only earn money on the transaction fees. So we don't know what the situation will be at that point. All these uh, remittances businesses, they can say one day, you know what, we're just lowering our fees like radically, and it will be cheaper than Bitcoin or, or you know, any other crypto. This economic stuff, what's cheaper, what brings you income, what uh, you know, helps you save money, it's like really all very volatile topics. Like it's very disputable. The, the only thing that kind of remains unchanged is that you absolutely can send your Bitcoin to whomever in the world you want. And nobody can, can stop you from doing that. You Maybe, know, that's the I bare mean... minimum. <laughs> well, they tried. Remember when there was that mining pool that tr- attempted to be uh, compliant with sanctions and not let verify transactions in Iran and it completely backfired on them? They backed off so fast. <laughs> like they just were like, oh, oh, no, like, you know what? We didn't mean that. But in the case of El Salvador, it's becoming public tender there, but they still need a company like Strike and Jack Mallers to make it uh, feasible or apparently feasible for people to use it there. It's not like you can just start using Bitcoin without any private company input. I do hope that we don't move to a situation where the governments are imposing it. It does seem like that might be somewhat of a case in El Salvador. But the idea that a government would require you to use Bitcoin is so strange to me that it's even happening remotely (laughs) in El Salvador, that it's so anathema to what Bitcoin stands for, this idea of a, you know, electronic peer-to-peer cash that is outside of the government. Then you've got the government saying, oh, you have to accept it. That's very uh, uncomfortable. I I, I don't know. The reality of life as we live it, is that uh, things are rarely sort of black and white. And, you know, there's no way that Bitcoin can really live completely pure and true to its values uh, as it becomes adopted. I mean, we're already seeing some way in which uh, it's been taken up on on Wall Street is already leading to some kind of compromises on the kind of old cypherpunk ideals. So uh, I don't think we should judge Bitcoin too harshly because some country out there mandated the use of it. Well, I mean, I'm judging the government is what I'm saying. There's no way to judge Bitcoin. Bitcoin, there's no leader of Bitcoin. There's, it's a decentralized distributed network. So 
you can't really pass judgment upon something like that, in my opinion. It, I don't really know how you would, because who are you passing judgment on? Well, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, people, as Bitcoin becomes adopted, it inevitably is not going to necessarily fulfill some of those ideals of the cypherpunks who, who imagine this completely government-free system and this kind of this sort of perfect world of internet transactions. I think as it meets the real world of the real financial system, the real government control, real uh, interest groups that have uh, no interest in furthering Bitcoin, then inevitably there are going to be some compromises. And I don't think we should get too hung up on the idea that Bitcoin is no longer this sort of perfectly conceived idea. Thank you, Anna. And thank you, Danny, for this excellent show. It's been terrific and a very, very important topic. All right. This is Opinionated. I'm Anna Bajdakova, and we've been here today with uh, Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Anita Posh. Please make sure you check out her book, Learn Bitcoin, and her podcast, The Anita Show. And thank you for listening. See you all next week. Bye. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Bajdakova, Danny Nelson, and guest Anita Posh. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with music by Ellison. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>